Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode 14 of my book entitled Ultima Thule Unraveling the Unknown. This is the last episode of Chapter 7, which is called 100,000 Years of Diaspora. In the last episode, I went back and shared how the earliest humans left Africa and some of the challenges that they faced largely due to the Milankovitch cycles. And that took us from about 100,000 years ago when things were pretty warm around the planet to about 50,000 years ago when humans first were really starting to populate the rest of the globe. I talked about how humans interacted with Neanderthals and the Denisovans and how each of their DNA has gotten into portions of the human DNA. But in today's episode, we're going to be looking at a much colder Earth. Colder than it has been in a long time. This is where having a copy of the book and seeing the pictures that I have put in the book are really helpful. Because seeing an ice sheet that covers North America from the North Pole all the way down to roughly New York City, and that crosses the entire continent, is really what feels like an alien planet. And I'm going to talk about a group of people who decided to make that ice sheet their home. This, of course, harkens back to some of the earlier episodes I did, focused on the Arctic, and specifically the episode with Peter Freuken. I really enjoyed his story with his adaptation to the Arctic and almost how, at least for a while, he sort of rejected civilization and lived the lifestyle of the Arctic people and even married an Inuit wife. How he survived up in the Arctic is because he learned the way of these Arctic people that first adapted to this environment around this time that I'm going to share in today's episode. Over the last 50,000 years, up until about 12,000 years or so ago, this planet was much more cold than it is today. Large blocks of Europe were frozen in ice, and there were lowlands that were warm and wet that are now deep under the ocean surface. So today I am going to talk a little bit about how Europe was ultimately populated much later than most of Asia due to how cold it was. But in particular, I want to share the story of the earliest Native Americans and what is the earliest evidence of their existence, as well as how they had a split when the Earth started warming again. If you've been enjoying this series and would like a PDF copy of this book, you can 
give a donation and I will provide you with one. If you don't have the money or just enjoy listening, you can always like, rate, or review, or tell a friend to help spread the word. You can follow me at no character limit at mastodon.world, and you can always reach out to me at no character limit at protonmail.com. So let's finish up chapter 7 100,000 Years of Diaspora. Chapter 7, Part 3, The Native American Window These natural pressures created by the Milankovitch cycles forced our collective ancestors to adapt, change, or die trying to the point of fundamentally changing their DNA. While the Milankovitch cycles weren't directly responsible, they created a sort of conditions factory that forced humans to adapt or die. People tens of thousands of years apart found themselves repeatedly in a similar situation. First, groups are pulled into the land of abundance in northern Africa, whose descendants then found themselves pushed back out into the cold, dry, and inhospitable regions of the Middle East. None of them were truly successful, until those who were so desperate that they resorted to inbreeding, and then interbreeding with another species to survive. And nearly everyone on the planet can call this group that made desperate attempts to survive north of the Sahara during the uncharitable seasons of the Milankovitch cycles their ancestors. Another genetic bottleneck has been found after sequencing the DNA of Native Americans from both North and South America. These first humans to reach the Americas came crossing over Beringia from Asia to Alaska somewhere between 13,000 and 25,000 years ago. The population of the Americas before European contact is not definitively known, but estimates range between 2 million and 18 million Native Americans that lived across both continents before the arrival of the Europeans in the 15th century. Before this contact, everyone living in North and South America were the descendants of one single wave of people that crossed Beringia, whose population likely totaled no more than 70 individuals. It's not unrealistic to think that the numbers of L3 humans that first came out of Africa were just as low, living on the brink of extinction, 
only to rebound and flourish across the globe, ultimately making their way even into the Americas. So, did the Milankovitch cycles also play a deciding factor for those earliest 70 proto-Americans, as it had so crucially done to the L3 haplogroup that left Africa? If climate works as a sort of conditions factory, like in a scientific experiment, What conditions compelled the earliest Americans to have crossed Beringia into the Western Hemisphere? In order to know the answer to that question, it is first important to know when exactly the Native Americans first made their way over from Asia to America. But Just like the question of when humans left Africa, inconsistencies between archaeological and genetic records emerge that complicate the answer. One important archaeological site in the Americas is ANSIC in Wilsall, Montana. It's located right along the western edge of the Rocky Mountains, which serve as a magnificent backdrop in this otherwise flat landscape. Anzic is special for being one of the earliest sites of the Clovis people, who were first discovered around Clovis, New Mexico, but other locations of the same culture soon were discovered all around North America, with sites as far east as the Atlantic in modern-day Massachusetts, as far south as the Gulf of California in Mexico, and as far west as the Columbia River in Washington, the Clovis people appeared to dominate the continent for hundreds or possibly even thousands of years. What unified these archaeological sites was what's called Clovis culture, which includes the plentiful Clovis points, mainly spear, knife, and scraper points, that were made in a distinctive pattern, typically out of rocks such as flint and jasper. Other similarities between the Clovis culture sites include other tools made from bone and ivory. It can't be certain when the Clovis people began, but it's likely they thrived with their shared culture all across the continent about 13,000 years ago only about 3,000 years before the Kiffians were going to make their way into the Green Sahara for the first time. Anzic is some of the earliest and clearest evidence of the existence of Clovis people, going back to about 13,000 years ago. Anzic is not only the oldest Clovis site found so far in the Americas, but it also contains precious human remains with DNA that is still able to be tested, making it a particularly valuable discovery. A one-year-old boy 
Buried in the foothills of the Rockies, near the glacial runoff from an ice sheet that has long since receded north, had the tantalizing signs of an intentional burial. Just like the Kiffians a few thousand years later, the boy at Anzic would be buried with countless artifacts, giving us an indication of this ancient culture. Clovis points in the form of blades and scrapers, as well as beveled and incised antler rods, were all found buried with the baby. This large number of tools buried with this young child indicated the group had a high level of respect for their lost loved one, emphasized by the use of red ochre in the burial ritual, a widely used ceremonial powder for Native Americans. The Clovis people seemed to burst forth all at once on a subglacial North America, with Clovis culture being found all across the United States in short spans of time, but then mysteriously disappearing just as quickly from the archaeological record around 11,000 years ago. But the Anzic boy's DNA has been found to be very similar to nearly 80% of Native Americans in both North and South America. This essentially makes the Clovis people the direct ancestors of nearly all Native Americans on both continents. The other 20% are a group of people known as the Ancient Beringians, who lived on the ice sheet and are survived by those Native Americans who live in the Arctic region today, favored by the likes of Peter Freuchen and most commonly known as Inuit. While the ancient Beringians were an ice-dwelling people and the Clovis people preferred more temperate climates, the two distinct Native American groups had many similarities as well, indicating a similar origin. At an archaeological site in Upward Sun River in Alaska, a pair of young girls of the Beringian culture have been discovered who were also buried with similarly carved antlers as the Anzic boy around 11,500 years ago. Some of these antlers were strangely dated to be hundreds of years older than the bodies discovered at the burial site possibly making them a sort of cultural artifact that had been passed down through several generations and spanning back hundreds of years. The antler found with the Clovis baby in Anzic was one such heirloom, likely pointing to how precious the child was to those who had lost him. This antler had likely been in the family for generations, only to end its journey here, with the burial of a baby boy who never had a true chance to live his life. 
but the connection between the Beringian and Clovis burials, particularly with the use of much older antlers, are too similar to ignore the likeness of a common heritage between the ancient Beringians and Clovis people. Other archaeological sites with human artifacts as far south as Vancouver Island push the human presence in North America back between 14,000 and 15,000 years ago. This was somewhere close to the southern extent of the ice sheet that had frozen over North America at the time. However, the genetic evidence suggests the window that humans could have made it to the Americas goes as far back as 25,000 years ago, leaving a 10,000-year gap between the earliest genetic evidence and the earliest archaeological evidence. One theory is that as those earliest ancestors to Native Americans worked their way over to America from Asia, they paused their journey somewhere up in the frozen northern wastelands of Beringia. This pause was likely some sort of settlement that descendants of the original travelers stayed for possibly generations, as the DNA of Clovis and ancient Beringians have too much in common to show multiple waves of humans crossing the ice-covered Beringia back and forth. The people Peter Freuken connected with in the icy tundra of Greenland were likely a touchstone of these original Arctic experts that have existed in the far north for possibly 20,000 years or more. The ancestors of the first Native Americans were L3 humans who embarked upon a haphazard journey across the Asian continent with no understanding of the boundaries of the world as we know them today. They followed the food and adapted to new landscapes, but whether it was a push factor shoving them out of their old home to new biomes, or a pull factor like flourishing landscapes just beyond the next hill, is not fully known. At some point, many thousands of years after the L3 diaspora, these earliest pre-Americans came to be well adapted to the cold during a time that the Milankovitch cycles provided some of the coldest climate the Earth had experienced in a very long time. Neanderthal blood and instincts, even if it was less than 1%, likely played a role in adapting to a landscape that was never intended for the warm and wet-dwelling humans of sub-Saharan Africa. Peter Freuken was able to get a glimpse during his lifetime of a lifestyle that had existed in the Arctic since humans first reached it. Surviving these Spartan landscapes was their specialty. It was the niche 
they were able to fill in an area where most other humans would turn around. No doubt these people heavily depended on the sea in a landscape that was barren of trees and vegetation, just as the Inuit still do to this day. In the 18th century, Beringia still remained one of the most uninhabited places on the planet. Despite being roughly 20,000 years removed from the original ancient Beringians. Despite all of human technological advances and the substantial warming of the climate between the first Beringians 20,000 years ago and the ones of the 1740s, those outside of Beringian culture still largely avoided the place as just being too inhospitable. So to explore this mystical land of auroras and ice, Russia sent out one of the largest scientific and exploration expeditions in the 1740s even predating the scientific expeditions during the transit of Venus in the 1760s. Known as the Second Kamchatka Expedition, it was led by Vitus Bering, whose name is the root of Beringia and the Bering Strait. In 1741, Bering set off to the New World from the Pacific side of Russia to meet his fate and be forever immortalized, sacrificing himself for the good of science and exploration. According to the author Stephen R. Bown, Bering led a retinue of thousands of scientists, secretaries, students, interpreters, artists, surveyors, naval officers, mariners, soldiers, and skilled laborers, all of whom had to be brought to the eastern coast of Russia across 8,000 kilometers of roadless forests, swamps, and tundra, along with tools, iron, canvas, foods, books, and scientific implements. Despite this vast effort, nearly all of these people did not have the skills to survive in the merciless Arctic. But Bering's crew did make it to the area that is now southeastern Alaska in July of 1841, while Bering was recovering from an illness that he contracted over the course of the voyage. The crew was ecstatic, having just crossed the treacherous Bering Strait to this new continent of wild bounty. They named the mountain range they discovered there for St. Elias, as that happened to be the holiday in which they finally made landfall on Alaska. Yet, during this celebration, Bering recorded in his journal a sense of foreboding that he harbored from the rest of his group. Quote, We think we have accomplished everything, and many go about greatly inflated, but they do not consider where we have reached land, how far we are from home, and what may yet happen. Who knows but that perhaps trade winds may arise which may prevent us from returning. 
We do not know this country, nor are we provided with supplies for wintering. End quote. Bering and his crew encountered the descendants of these earliest Native Americans who had lived in the area uninterrupted for at least the last 15,000 years. With Bering's crew unprepared for the fast-approaching winter, these Native Americans must have looked at their long-lost cousins strangely, wondering how they were planning to survive the upcoming winter. With the crew fearing mass starvation and illness, they decided to once again board the ships and head back to Russia in an attempt to beat the winter. Exploring the vast area between western Alaska and eastern Russia, Bering's crew witnessed some truly ancient species, like the Stellar's sea cow, a manatee-like creature that had existed for millions of years in the area. In my book, I show a depiction of what the Stellar's sea cow looked like. But other, more familiar animals like sea otters, fur seals, and sea lions were also there and, according to Bown, quote, covered the whole beach to such an extent that it was not possible to pass without danger to life and limb, end quote. Word of the abundance of Arctic sea life would return back to Europe and be followed with a massive overhunting and overfishing campaign which would decimate the wild populations in the region. Just to show how bad this was, the Stellar's sea cow would go extinct within 27 years after its discovery on this mission due to the high demand for its fat, meat, and hide. Winter descended on the crew before they could make it back home, and their ship ran aground. The team was forced to winter on an island that was not suited to host them. And it was here where Bering and many others from the second Kamchatka expedition lost their lives. But finally, the remainder of the expedition was able to make it home to describe to the Western world what they had found, which ultimately caused a commercial rush to the region. The island they had to survive on was also named in honor of the expedition's leader. Less than 300 years ago, the continent-sized area of Beringia was still one of the most hostile places on the planet, and yet it didn't even compare to how unforgiving it would have been 15,000 years ago when the earliest ancient Beringians arrived. Wildlife must have been abundant in these polar regions back then, just as they were during Bering's time, a 
possible pull factor that may have drawn in those roughly 70 proto-Americans who went on to populate the Western Hemisphere's two continents. While the abundance of wildlife likely pulled these earliest L3 ancestors into Beringia, the Milankovitch cycles were also at work behind the scenes. The global temperature had been steadily getting colder since humans left Africa 50,000 to 70,000 years ago. And by the time the first Native Americans reached North America, the Earth was in one of its deepest freezes since the origin of humanity. People who embraced the frigid temperatures and survived were able to fill out a new niche of humanity. L3 humans had eventually found their way into Europe about 40,000 years ago and had adapted to conditions that were similar to that of Beringia. Europe was also the Neanderthal stronghold of the world, and unlike the previous versions of humans that found themselves outside of Africa, the L3s that made their way into Europe must have been well acquainted to their cousins' tactics. These L3 humans moved in, and they moved in hard, because just as the archaeological evidence indicates that humans spread into Europe, the record also indicates a decrease in Neanderthal population at the very same time. Humans were so successful in the icy climes of Europe, there are theories that our human ancestors were the cause of the total extinction of the Neanderthal. This was a new group of cold-dwelling L3 humans that spanned the entire Earth and quickly overtook Neanderthal-dominated regions just at a time where the Neanderthals should have been flourishing as a species. The climate suited them more, and Europe gave them home advantage, but as seen with the Stellar's sea cow, it does not take long for humans to collectively eradicate a species, if indeed that is how the Neanderthals met their demise. In North America around 15,000 years ago, glaciers had pushed as far south as to cover the northern third of the United States, this ice sheet stretched so far that it would have reached modern-day New York City and Pennsylvania, making it many times the size of anything Peter Freuchen had explored in his day. When Freuchen learned to adapt to the Arctic tundra, he was learning the ways that were first discovered by those ancestors of the ancient Beringians and Clovis people. And for 15,000 years, this Arctic lifestyle had prospered. 
Just as the Toreg adapted to the desert after the Green Sahara disappeared 5,000 years ago, these Native Americans chose to go to the eternal land of ice and snow and made it a lifestyle. But just as the ancient Beringians were hitting their stride on an increasingly frigid planet, the Earth clock ticked and Earth began towards a Milankovitch spring. Glaciers began to recede, and the continental surface underneath was once again revealed, sculpted by the massive ice shelf that dug into it for tens of thousands of years. This new land of bounty exposed under the ice likely led to the population explosion of the Clovis people who chose a new landscape to dominate. Temperatures warmed, wildlife became more diverse, and more land was available across the whole of the continent. We will likely never know exactly how the ancient Beringians and Clovis people culturally split at the time these climate changes began to take effect. The ancient Beringians might have been the more conservative group, following the traditions that had led to success for their people for thousands of years in the unforgiving yet bountiful landscape between Asia and North America. They depended on the ancient megafauna that survived all around them. Not just the manatees, whales, otters, sea lions, polar bears, wolves, and seals, but extinct species such as mammoths and direwolves. It may have been a brutal and stark landscape, but it was familiar and reliable enough to sustain them for so long their roots from inland Asia were completely forgotten. And as they noticed the climate warming 15,000 years ago, they may have looked to the warming south and saw new dangers. Yes, there were more species, but that also meant more hazards. Not only would dire wolves and grizzly bears be found there as well, but also saber-toothed tigers, the American lion, and countless dangerous insects and plants. These conditions were only to be dealt with sparingly, if at all because they had found sustenance within the frozen lands of the north. Then there must have been a second group who were drawn into the warmer temperatures, especially when the Milankovitch cycles forced it upon them. Silty pearl rivers ran from the ice sheet, creating a bounty of fresh water to live by. These receding glaciers created the Missouri, Mississippi, Ohio, and St. Lawrence rivers, as well as the Great Lakes. And to these rich alluvial soils came life in even greater abundance, including horses, bison, 
mastodons, peccaries, and the American mountain deer. Readapting to a warmer climate that their ancient ancestors were once acclimated to. The Clovis people flourished and continued to push south, ultimately becoming the ancestors of all native South Americans today. But these Clovis people who dominated North and South America were the equivalent of the L3 humans that left Africa. They definitely dominated the Americas as cultural ancestors, but there is evidence that they may not have been the first to arrive. There are multiple archaeological sites that challenge the theory that Clovis people were the first to populate these subarctic regions. Pre-Clovis archaeological sites have been found across North America and even as far south as Monteverde, Chile. Huts that were dated to be at least 14,000 years old. Bones from giant South American animal species and seaweed from distant coastlines have all been found at Monteverde making it unequivocally human. But these people used no Clovis points, nor any other known tools of their culture. The age of sites like Monteverde can challenge whether those original 70 Native American ancestors were the first people to reach the Western Hemisphere. Ancient sites like Monteverde hint at a people who had arrived first, but were nearly totally erased by the more powerful people to come later on. Just like how the pre-L3 sites of Jualapuram and Daba left no known trace in our collective genetic history. The people of Monteverde appeared to just vanish from history. As recent as 2020, an analysis of stone tools found in Chiquihuite Cave in Mexico have definitively dated back to 30,000 years ago, which is more than twice as old as the earliest Clovis findings. Chiquihuite Cave is hard evidence that the extreme range of possible human or hominin presence in America goes back to at least 30,000 years ago. But some archaeologists have made a case that a hominin presence dates back to as long as 130,000 years ago. They claim to have found a mastodon bone quarry, as they call it, in California and they argue that only hominins could have created such a place. But the mastodon bone quarry theory's evidence is not certain and does allow for other interpretations as to their cause, whereas Chiquihuite Cave is far more clear-cut. At the bone quarry site, there are smashed bones, large rocks, and marks that are not likely the result of natural causes. 
but the marks are consistent with man-made marks, so a compelling case can be made that toolmakers once lived there. But the case of the Mastodon bone quarry in California does not yet seem strong enough to sway the majority of the archaeological community, especially since it's claiming a human-dwelling site 100,000 years earlier than even Chiquihuite Cave, with only indirect evidence. The findings at Chiquihuite, though, indicate that humans or another hominin had found their way to America before the 70 Proto-Americans from the L3 haplogroup. Just like the earliest humans that pushed their way out of Africa, they were not able to sustain themselves and ended up dying off rather than proliferating. The fact that there were only 70 or so ancestors to the modern Native Americans shows how easily chance could have stopped them from flourishing in the Western Hemisphere as well. One interesting possibility to consider is that L3 humans came into contact with one of these ancient hominins or humans already living in the Americas and killed them off or interbred with them, leaving such trace amounts of DNA as to not be detectable. There are hypotheses put forth that the Americas were even populated originally from Western Europe, in the same way the Viking Leif Erikson reached North America many millennia later. If this was the case, the L3 haplogroup would have possibly already been here when the more dominant ancestors of all Native Americans came down from Beringia. We can't quite know for certain the situation before the ancient Beringians and Clovis people, especially with mysterious sites like Chiquihuite Cave that tell us there is always more to the story. Even if there are not archaeological sites to back these ideas, it's important to remember that even the most popular and successful people of the earth tens of thousands of years ago have very few archaeological sites remaining. Any impression of a small number of ancient hominins even humans who made their way to America before the ancestors of today's Native Americans could have easily just disappeared from the record. The importance of the sea could have drawn many of these pre-Native American humans to live along the coastline, only to have gotten their sites swallowed up by the rising oceans over the last 15,000 years dozens or hundreds of feet below the waves. Nearly all records of coastal ancestors would have been wiped out under the warming seasons of the Milankovitch cycles.
thank you for listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast, as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.